Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to Three, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic, and part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. It is ATP Finals round robin stage. Rafa Nadal has played all three matches. Djokovic has one to come. We're going to get into all of that looking back and looking forward in the case of Novak. But first, huge news, great news for Novak Djokovic and tennis fans around the world. Australia is going to revoke the three-year ban that uh, situationally was levied on Novak Djokovic uh, for being deported at the start of 2021 with the visa issues. Uh, They are going to uh, revoke that and offer Novak Djokovic a visa to play the 2023 Australian Open, according to reporting from The Guardian and the Sydney Morning Herald. Novak has uh, also obviously... I think received word personally and says he's very relieved by the decision. Uh, so it feels like common sense has has prevailed here, considering where Australia is at, right, Amy? Absolutely. The news is just that common sense prevailed because to invoke the three-year ban for someone like this in this situation who was really taking a stand out of his own personal principles and after the huge court cases last year and all that, it just wouldn't make sense to um, impose a three-year ban on one of the greatest tennis players in the world who who doesn't um, pose a threat. And given where we are in the pandemic, I think to have kept the three-year ban would have appeared to be punitive, and there wasn't really any reason to punish. Um, From just my personal opinion, I'm thrilled that he's going to be there. And by all accounts, Nadal's going to be there as well. So you'll have the defending champion and back to tennis. And maybe things will calm down a little bit and we can just enjoy tennis. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the, uh, I thought that three-year ban, I had a strong feeling when that was cited less earlier this year, that that was not going to be applied again in the future. So then the question was going to be, was Australia going to let unvaccinated people into the country. And that's how it's the case. It'll be, it'll be great to see Novak. And I think, I think for all the things I've read about Novak in Australia, I, I think people are going to be pretty eager to just see him play tennis. I mean, I am, I see him going for his 10th title there and Nadal, the defending champ. That's fantastic. What a great storyline that's going to be. Joel, you mentioned it. I want to just be very clear um, about how things are in Australia. There is no vaccine mandate um, anymore. Um, and, you know, going back to the two things that should have transpired at the start of 2021, uh, was, you know, basically two options, either the public health policy should have suggested that Novak Djokovic was not allowed to enter Australia. He should have been told that, and then that should have been that he would have stayed home. That's the first thing that would have been 
an acceptable outcome. The second thing that would have been an acceptable outcome is that Djokovic was properly told, yes, you do have an exemption. He comes in, he goes through, he's let in, he plays the tournament, everything is good. The three-year ban was a result of the circus that unfortunately was uh, what we were left with after the complications at the border that resulted in multiple appeals and court cases and, you know, governing red tape and procedural stuff. That's where the three-year ban came from. Never should have happened. Agreed. And what a, what a complicated thing. Why? What a, think of all the timelining we were doing during that time. I mean, my God, all the complications about that and, and Novak and the government, and, and I'm glad we can hopefully put it behind and then just move forward and see hopefully what's going to be a great Australian Open. One question that remains is how he will be received by the Australian fan base. And if you recall my prediction back in February when we were putting a cap on all this is that Novak would return and that it would be a story of redemption and that the fans would applaud him and all that. And you know what? I don't think Australian fans are vindictive at all. I think they are going to applaud him and be happy to see him there. So I stand by my prediction that I made in February. I agree with you on that, Amy. And I think, though, also it's important to distinguish between Australians who have an attitude or have an attitude, have beliefs about certain things and the ones who attend the tennis tournament, too. Are different as well. Good point. So it's exactly. kind of exactly. I mean, it's so what will be will be. It still will be um, interesting and captivating to see Novak upon arrival in Australia and how that just occurs and what goes on with that. And that'll be uh, that'll be fascinating to see. Yeah, he did discuss an awkwardness about you know when when he was being allowed to train when they were in that holding period in Australia you know being in the locker room and and seeing the stairs and how uncomfortable that was for him uh, so hopefully that dissipates i think it will rather quickly in terms of how the you know Australian public uh feels about it i completely agree with that Joel i think the people inside Rod Laver Arena will uh will come from a, a much different viewpoint than the people who are responding to polling that, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, Channel 9 puts out. Uh, Djokovic in those polls didn't perform well as I discuss him at, as if he's a politician, which he's not. Um, but I, I think inside Rod Laver Arena, things are going to feel very normal. Yeah. And again, I, I, I like that you mentioned the thing about polls because one of my things I try to avoid is treating sports too much like politics and politics too much like sports. You know, like where the, the, the politics is a series of numbers and scores. They're a political science major here. Uh, there is one really good thing that we should mention that came out of all this, and that was the government of Australia finally had to address a troubling refugee situation whereby some refugees from other countries were being held in this hotel and in other locations, the hotel where Djokovic stayed, for years some of them, while their processes were being held up by red tape. And there was one really vocal one in particular whose story was really tugged at the heartstrings. This guy came to Australia almost through no fault of his own and then got trapped in this um, never-ending cycle. And 
I followed him and followed him and followed him. Happy ending to the story. He ended up in the United States through a swap that the two governments did to try to address this refugee situation. And most people, including myself, really don't think that these swaps would have come about had not Djokovic brought attention to it because of his situation. So there was um, a human rights element to this, which was very positive. Well, I, I didn't realize that because uh, it, it had escaped my radar. So thank you for following that. And, and that's great news. Uh, let's get to the tennis. Uh, Nadal goes one and two. He loses his first match to Taylor Fritz, second match to Felix Ojealiasim, and then he beats Casper Ruud. Joel, was this an ATP Finals where Rafa got what he was looking for out of it, or was this showing, this one and two showing, a cause for some kind of long-term concern? I don't. I have long-term concern in Rafa. I separate. I mean, I've been watching this great guy play for 20 years and seen, no, I think this was just end of year. And he probably knew what the scenario could be. I mean, he hadn't played since the U S open Paris, one match, one match, losing Tommy Paul here, the round Robin, obviously not as sharp, eager, young players, end of year. Good. Okay. Home family build for 23. And I, I, I think it's, I think he won't even be thinking about this tennis. Maybe even by now, he's not even thinking about this tennis. It's just on. Well, to- he does have that big exhibition in Latin America coming up next week. And I I've got some friends online and on Twitter that are going to attend and they're super, super excited to see Rafa play in person for the first time. So he does have that. And we, I think we talked on the last or one of the last few podcasts about how it would appear if Rafa played that huge exhibition tour and did not play the ATP tour finals. And Joel, I think you said that, you know, trust Rafa's humanity. And that was a good call because he ended up playing this, even though his tennis has not been picture perfect. He did well. He did properly buy the ATP tour and he didn't just take the law into his hands. He did properly play, play an event underprepared and of course for him i wrote this as he would he, he thinks he'd be insulting the world by not preparing by not doing his homework so he kind of knew yeah this is kind of i got what i deserved for not having a proper preparation and latin america exhibitions that's almost more of a compensated practice for 2023 than has anything to do with calendar 22 results wait but that aside i think even if there was no exhibition tour, what Rafa was saying about playing here made sense. And I believe it that he really feels like to go into his off season preparation after getting a few matches in is going to be beneficial for him. Sure. And, and that he needs to, you know, he wants to play these real matches that don't feel like any practice you can play against these top players in front of a crowd. He wants to, to, have these feelings and take these feel, even if they're bad ones to go into the, the off season training block um, with, with those memories fresh and, and that muscle memory fresh so that when it's time to play again in January, it doesn't feel so far. And it, it, it isn't a situation where his last match was at the U S open the year prior. Now we've seen him do that and be okay, but 
you know, when, when Nadal says it's going to help me to play these matches, I believe him. And certainly it seemed that way with his win earlier this morning against Kasparud when he managed to play his best match. Well, yeah, he's of course, I mean, he wouldn't, he'd rather come to Australia having at least played four matches in November than none since the U S open. But look what happened last year too. when he played the pre-tournament, the tournament before the Australian open. I, I think it's, I think it, 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 the time movement in tennis goes so fast and so many things and so much other stuff he's going to take care of it and there's also so much what accrued competitive equity that Nadal has I mean yeah of course he wants of course he's going to say that it's true but it's four matches indoors onward we went into this event and we kind of knew it was coming it was going to be tough these conditions are the quickest for any big event and let's get into this more when we talk about Novak. Incredibly quick, low bouncing, indoor hardcourt, no form whatsoever, didn't look good in Paris. This was all expected. Um, and, you know, Fritz, tough matchup. Felix, he's played him tough. He serves incredibly well in these conditions and, and served him off the court, which I think was somewhat predictable. Uh, Kasparud, there are some reasons why maybe that looked better. Uh, for me, the key was time. Uh, was that the big difference, um, Amy, for you? Like, I felt against Fritz and Felix against, you know, how early and big they hit Rafa looked rushed and against rude, he had more time and that just enabled him to feel more comfortable on this court. Yeah. There's more top spin there. So, you know, he sees that ball and he says, I know this ball, it's my own ball. And, you know, this is how this feels comfortable to me because probably this is how I spar on a, on a clay court or something like that. So Rafa said something weeks ago, and I mentioned it on our podcast about um, reflexes. And when you get older, you have your reflex slows down. And I, I know what he means because I've definitely felt that on a tennis court before, but I think maybe he's going through a little crisis of confidence. And I said that at the time. Um, because his reflexes at age 36 would not have diminished that much. That being said, on this surface where you really do have to have cat-like reflexes, um, I think the difference between an FAA match and a rude match is going to be a huge difference in comfort level for Nadal. And even though the match against rude was a close match, um, you got to see like the glimpses of Rafa in that. Yeah, I would agree. And also, uh, Rude, nowhere near the server, nowhere near the server of Felix or Taylor Fritz. So, so the, the getting into the points, and of course, Rafa by then had played two matches uh, at the tournament, and and the fact that nothing was at stake. I mean, it was just kind of a, you know, it wasn't quite in the thick of the round robin the way the earlier ones were. I won't disagree on the Rude serve thing, but it is quite good. It's a good. Oh, it's serve. good. It's good, but it's not. It's it's not taking the racket out of his hands. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Nadal it's... Nadal hit more aces than than Casper. Uh, that okay. wasn't true in the other two matches. No, no, they were serving. They were serving great. I mean, I think I think at one point OJ Alamassim had won like eighteen of nineteen points when he got his first serve in. I mean, just and that whole that whole that's that we've known as far back as Robin Soderling, even Andy Roddick once upon a time. That's the recipe versus Nadal. Just take just take the racket out of his hands. Don't let him play. And big firepower, firepower, you know, terminate many service points. Yeah, that's, that's definitely what they did. Amy, it's fascinating. You bring that up. Uh, his quote after playing Taylor Fritz was very similar. 
He said, uh, it, it felt too fast for me out there. I, you know, the mind was too slow. The body was too slow. It was essentially what he said. And, but you know, to his credit, he wasn't like, well, it's cause I'm old. It was like, well, because I'm just coming back and I'm not in form and I need these repetitions to speed up again. Um, and I remember at certain point, and I don't even remember which side of the discussion you guys were on, but I know that one of you thought it was easier to come back after a long layoff on clay. I think one of you oh, yeah. thought it was easier to come back after a long layup, lay layoff on a quick surface. It almost sounds like Rafa is saying it would be a lot easier for me to, you know, get back into this if it wasn't so fast. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Well, probably it depends. I forget what we each thought. Maybe I was probably, but I think for Rafa, for was it for Nadal? Because for, for Nadal, I think it would obviously be clay because that's more his his favorite. You know, that's more his his original surface. So he would like that. I think Pete Sampras would prefer to come back on grass. Do you know what I mean? You see what yeah. I'm getting at? Yeah, and that's the most sense. That's definitely the most sensible, I think, angle to take at it is that it depends on the player. Clay's not my best surface, but I'd rather come back on clay any day after a long layoff just because of the time. You know, you're perfecting your technique and you have a little bit more time on the backswing and that and to get to balls and you can practice your footwork and running around and all that. But I, I don't love playing on clay, but would rather come back on clay. Now I recall the dialogue. Yeah. And I would rather come back on hard because I've played most of my life on hard courts. And I got the true bounce and I'm not, uh, though you're probably more familiar with hard than I am with clay. You've played more on clay. You know, you've played, you guys, since you've each lived in the East coast have had more balanced. I mean, I'd say 99% of my tennis in my life has been on hard courts. So, yeah. so, so is it, so it's kind of like clay is like a, it's not exactly a foreign language because I like it, but it's kind of more novel than it is core. Yeah, the the clay requires more fitness is what 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 I feel, um, and and that can be a challenge if you're coming back. But I think in terms of actually executing the tennis itself and hitting the ball, um, I'd much rather come back on a on a slower surface. I think the time is key, and uh, it really did feel like Nadal was very much rushed um, against Felix and Taylor, and then it looked like he had time against Kasparud, and it made all the difference. Um, the, the return strategy was interesting though. Uh, he wasn't standing far back. He was trying to take the return early. He did that in Paris against Tommy Paul as well. Um, you know, I, I almost think that means that he doesn't want to defend. 
that he wants to be in a better position uh, when he gets the return back in, in play. So I think there's also some, some lacking of trust in, in Rafa's legs um, at the moment. But all in all, like, I don't know that we have to dig into to his game and the shortcomings and what's working well right now. I think the fact is, you know, he showed up. He didn't really have a chance um, to, to have a great showing at this event. And he kind of got what he needed to get out of it, which by the time he played Casper Ruud, it was looking a lot better, and I feel like, I feel like it's a it's a check it's a check uh, check mark uh, in the box of the ATP Finals. The return strategy, I think, is also look. It's some investment, it's some research and development work for the long term. And why better rather than do this in a practice match back in in Spain? Why not do it in you know? I saw I once saw a round robin match in the WTA year end in LA. I forget if Sharapova had already earned a semi-spot. I think she already had. And she's serving volleyed a bunch, I think, versus Maresmo. You know, and there's Maria Sharapova serving volleying. So I think for Rafa's like, hey, this is kind of like a freebie. I'm eliminated from the round robin, but I get to play a match in front of a lot of people. So why not try some other return tactics and positions? And that's about, I mean, that's about investing into what 23 might be. Or maybe not. We'll see. We'll be talking all about his return position once we see him in Australia. And maybe they'll build new stands in Australia so they can accommodate people standing further back behind the behind the baseline to return. Mentally. I like that, Joel. I, I, su- I mean, if you're going to be in Australia on a hard court, you might as well mess around with your return position now. And as we've said many times about our three, one of the things that sets them apart is their ability and willingness to try new things and to change. There's there's like a lack of stubbornness there that is a super great quality for a competitor. And by the way, I do have a, a source that's spent some time with Rafa in Mallorca in recent months who says that Rafa has no plans to retire next year and that he is planning on playing the full calendar, ATP calendar, slams everything as long as his health will allow it expected right but good to hear yeah um i the the return position thing i think nadal is getting better at taking it early but it's uh it's still not his natural return of serve um and i i think he's a little bit better when he i think nadal at his best is looping that return and using his legs to then, you know, move up inside the court afterwards. Um, anyway, let's, uh, oh, let's acknowledge though. The, the mental thing is interesting here because for Kasparud, it was a dead rubber. He didn't need to win. He was in the semifinals already. And then for Nadal coming off the two losses, I think he was highly motivated to just play a better match. It wasn't about, you know, winning or losing, I think it was just, okay, let's get this right. Let's, let's find, let's find that form. So uh, mentally it was a good position for Nadal and he took advantage and uh, it's two and one. And now let's see uh, if this exhibition tour, what this looks like, it'll be interesting. Let's get to Novak. Uh, He has been absolutely dominant behind his first serve in these conditions. Beat Stefano Tsitsipas, 6-4, Beats Andre Rublev six four six one second consecutive uh, round robin World Tour Finals. He did this last year too, where he kind of wipes the floor with Andre Rublev, who was coming off that big win over Daniil Medvedev. So, 
Uh, Joel, what have you seen from, from Novak Djokovic in these two performances? He's on a mission. He wants to make one statement. I mean, I, I talked about, uh, when I wrote about Novak the other day, I wrote about often this, uh, this event has kind of a valedictory valedictorian quality and a certain kind of, vin but I think it's a little more vindication, like validation. He wants to, he wants to prove, Hey, wait a second. Hey, I'm the guy and I'm going to win this event and I'm playing well. And there's a focus that he has that I've really enjoyed seeing that. I mean, there's a certain kind of snap to his movement. I think the Paris thing, while it, the Paris tournament, while it didn't conclude quite the way he had hoped, he went all the way to the final. So he played every possible match. And I think there's a sense we talk about building the momentum for 23. I think Novak is very much in that mindset of wanting to do that and show. I mean, I was very impressed by his tennis. It's just kind of, it's kind of funny. You realize, you know, he'd only played 44 matches coming into this event. I mean, that's a good one third less than usual. And so you and hadn't seen him play that much this year. And you just saw how, um, how clean he is, how well he manages the court and time and space is really impressive in these matches. Well, I mean, I, I always go back to this, just sort of the smell test this time of year, every year. And I say, quick, who's the world number one? Who's the best player in the world right now? And I, I keep forgetting that the we have just given the trophy to Carlos Alcaraz when in my heart, the best player in the world right at this moment is Novak Djokovic. So I do think there's some motivation to say, hey, who's really the best in the world right now? And because the conditions favor him so much, this is the perfect chance to show it. I do think the Tsitsipas rivalry is emerging as very interesting because Stefanos keeps getting closer and closer and the scores keep getting better and better. It's just this last little mental hurdle to get over, which is really actually a big hurdle um, because it's coming down to just some very small margins and just a handful of points. And uh, that one, for me, that rivalry will be one of the most fascinating to watch in 2023. I like Nine. Let me just, before you go, Joel, nine straight for Novak in that head-to-head. -head. Now 10-2 overall after Tsitsipas took two out of the first three. So there we go. Well, there's Stefanos's, uh what, bar where he's got Novak's, he's got to kind of like figure that out. But yeah, not easy. These last two have been pretty dramatic in their way, particularly the one in Paris. But uh, I, I, it is to see how that, how they, play out how they play out i'd love to see them meet in an australian quarter semi be great to see that matchup i may um, I think with novak i like that you mentioned the uh the number one part amy because again there's the who's number one now there's the who's number one on the computer and to me there's the who's number one of the year to me my player of the year is nadal mm -hmm. and i and i don't and i don't you know, and again, there have been many years, I won't cite them now, many years in ATP computer history where this disparity has happened. Not one for a while, but for about the first 15, 20 years of the computer, there were many things that happened. And of course, certain things, points in Wimbledon. I mean, what if Nadal, Nadal didn't get any of his semi points for Wimbledon? Carlos lost earlier to Wimbledon. All these different things. So, and then here's Novak saying, hey, I'm the guy. I'm the guy now. The year's ending. I'm going to show it to you all once and for all. You're not even here, Carlos. You lost early, Rafa. I'm going to win this title. And I, I, I'd be um, 
again, while you know I don't like to make predictions, I'd be very surprised if Novak didn't win this tournament. Me too. And um, <clears throat> I, I agree with the sentiment uh, that, yes, Novak is, if certainly if I had to pick someone, is the best in the world right now. There were some misunderstanding uh, before this indoor hardcourt season began, I, or it maybe had just begun. I think he won Tel Aviv. And Amy, you said the same thing. And I, I said, I don't know. Uh, where's the proof? Uh, it wasn't that I didn't think there was some misunderstanding about this. It's not that I didn't think Novak was the number one. I had felt he didn't show it. He hadn't shown it. Uh, he, he won Wimbledon. That's what he had done for the year. He hadn't done much else. He did win Rome as well. Uh, and, you know, to me, sure, I can think something. But to me, Novak had not shown it yet. And at this point, with the run that he's gone on, uh, I think he's done a pretty good job of showing that he's currently the best player in the world. And then Novak, he didn't get his points for Wimbledon. And then here's a funny thing. Pre-computer, once upon a time, you won Wimbledon, end of discussion. That was the Super Bowl, American. The, <laughs> that was it. You won Wimbledon, you were number one. End of, it was like, there's like no discussion and there weren't computer points and all these other tournaments, but it's like, that was the one. And so that's changed a lot in the last 50 years, but then it changed even in a strange way for Novak to see he's not even in the top five. I don't know what he's going to finish if he wins this tournament, but it won't be two or one. Yeah. Um, okay, Amy, I want to address something you said. That's interesting. I wanted to talk about it anyway. The conditions uh, suit Novak. These conditions are very, very different from anything we've seen at a big tour level event in a very long time. Maybe we saw it last year a little bit, but um, this year it's just really jumping out to me. Oh my God, is this quick? I mean, first serve points one regularly over 80%. I think Djokovic, let, let me check out quickly what it was against Rublev. Against Rublev, 94% first serve points won for Djokovic. Against Tsitsipas, 82% first serve points won, which has been normal. Like, we're seeing that from everyone. We've seen mm -hmm. three third set tie breaks. We've seen a tie break in almost every match. But this mm -hmm. is, these conditions are extreme on the fast end of things. Let's talk about Novak, if it suits him, how it suits him. But first, for tennis, Joel, do you like this? Yeah. I think it's great. I know. I know there was some uh, dialogue about surface speeds. I think it's great. I think it's fun. I'm not saying it should be this way every every week, but I think it's great to see. And I think you also see whatever the situation, the cream usually rises. And I think Novak's fine. Faster, slower. I have technique. I have footwork. I have movement. I know I know what to do. I, I mean, you know, you see how I, I think I've been so, uh, I think I've kind of myself enjoying watching Novak serve. This week, I don't know why. I don't know if you ever have that where you go through a pier and you see a player. Mm -hmm. It's like I hadn't paid attention to this stroke as much before. And you see what a what a nice maybe in the absence of Federer, who was kind of like the poster child for serve plus one with between his motion and his forehand. Now you're seeing Novak. This is pretty good, and and the speed of the surface helps uh, enhance his serve even more. I think it's very impressive. Every week, no, but I think surface. I think that's great to see different speeds of surface. Yeah, I agree that Novak's amazing first serve and really good second serve as well has has done very well on this fast surface. But 
it really strikes me that sometimes what happens on a super fast surface where you would think that the person with the most firepower would have the biggest advantage, it come it sometimes like becomes converse where uh, the person who has the best defense and can defend that firepower has the edge in in a sport with tiny margins. And I think the combination of, you know, a very offensive first serve, an aggressive serve plus one forehand, and the defense that he has um, is is what's so far made things easy for Novak. It's a little bit like why we say someone like Isner actually likes playing on clay because now he has time to be defense. Uh -huh. away and on a fast court, well, now everybody's getting offense. Everybody's <laughs> getting kind of the, the tax break with the, with the serve on the, on the fast surface. So, so you're right. So it's like, wow, Taylor Fritz is thinking, well, wait, his service. I thought I was the guy with a fast serve, right? So his fast serve is even more impressive on a slow service. Yeah. There's a lot of these yin yangs. And I think, and I think for Novak, what you're seeing, um, I love this phrase. My teacher, Steve Stefanke, told me from this guy, Tom Stowe. There are two games in tennis, the serve game and the return game. The history of tennis is usually one player has more mastery of one than the other. But you're seeing Novak, the way the game is played now, he's great at both. Mm -hmm. I love those points um, about the defense standing out, even though the surface is quicker. Uh, to me, there's also a precision versus power thing at play. When the court is slow, power is at a premium. Nadal on clay, Stan Vavrinka on clay, Dominic Team on clay. They have the muscle to hit through the stuff. You have a surface this quick, not about the muscle. Uh, it's about the precision, the time you're taking away, the accuracy. That, to me, offensively, is Djokovic's domain. The spot serving has become so good and, and just starting to pay attention to when Novak is trying to be offensive, where he's able to put the ball, uh, just the accuracy of those plus one forehands. You know, obviously the backhand is, is laser precise. That is standing out so much um, because this court, it rewards that accuracy um, and, and the timing that is required to achieve that accuracy. So, uh, if you're looking at precision versus power, Djokovic is his scale is tipped towards the precision, and this quick court I think is really helping that become a factor. It'll reinforce the pleasing quality of his game. And as we look ahead towards Australia, I think I think the world is going to have a chance to kind of fall in love with Novak yet more. Move to January and think Roger's not going to be there. Um, Serena. Probably not there, even though I sometimes hear little rumblings that, you know, she's not officially retired. But again, in the world, wow, of our contemporary icons, we've Rafa and Novak. And I think the chance to give more understanding of what makes Novak so great. I mean, that stuff about precision. And again, that's so uh, that's scalable to also people learning the game about the role of precision. I mean, you can just imagine when Novak was young, the drills he did that revolved around, okay, cross court, six feet over the net deep, you know, just his, his, his craftsmanship and how good it is and how sound it is. And I, I think, I think there can be like a flowering of appreciation for what makes Novak such an incredible player. He is precise. And, 
the one little bone that I have to pick with him in the last dozen matches that he's played is that final in Paris against Runa. And it wasn't really a matter of precision as much as it was shot selection. So he was being fairly precise with the shots, the locations and the targets that he picked. It's just in the final closing arguments, there were a couple of forehands that should you have gone there or a volley, you know, why did you go back behind? So if Novak uh, advances, it looks like he will. Um, I, I really want to pay attention to his shot selection as much as his precision. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that's the worst match and it happens, but th this was my opinion on the Runa match. Bad day in the office won't happen again. I'd be really surprised if he plays a match like that um, again. Like, it's going to happen a couple times a year, but I just thought he was off that night. Uh, but let's see what happens as uh, he plays Medvedev tomorrow morning. That is a dead rubber. He will be in the semifinals, and uh, we will take it from there. That'll do it for this episode of 3. We're available on all podcast platforms. Big appreciate, appreciation if you leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of 3.